you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. You can take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. I guess the good thing about getting three and a half inches of rain, you don't have to worry about setting your house on fire with your firework. Although I had a neighbor that attempted to do that, I think. It's amazing to think when you, of our nation we're looking at in this Jeremiah. God raised him up to say to the nation of Judah, to Israel and to Israel, but primarily to Judah, Return to God. And I was thinking about as crazy as our nation has become and many of the leaders have turned their back on God. And as Charles Colson has said, we we live in a post-Christian culture. We're still the most blessed nation on planet Earth. And we celebrate 239 years this Today, yesterday, this weekend, July 4th, God has been good to America. I want to just share a little bit. If you think back, and and I love to look at history, particularly World War II fascinates me, and the Revolutionary War, and just studying the history of our nation. I remember when I was in college, I just loved studying history and, and probably would have ended up majoring in that or English if I had any money, but uh, I ended up getting my degree in economics because all you had to do was sit in there and talk, and that was the one thing I could do, so I, t- I said, I'll go with that one, but I loved studying history, still do. I, I sit there fascinated by particularly World War II, but when you look at the Revolutionary War, literally, you look back at the history and the power of England versus what we had, God just gave us that victory, the sovereignty of God, said, this is what I have in store for this group, this nation, and God's hand was on it. We just got victory. Same thing in World War II. You look at where it was, and God raised up a man like Winston Churchill and some incredible leadership and pretty much gave the Allies that victory. It did not look good, and the hand of God was there. In 1647, the Puritans established the Massachusetts Bay Colony on our shore. They started the first public school system five years later. They had three qualifications for their public school system. They had to have one qualified teacher for every 50 households. One school in every town of more than 100 families. And the Bible must be used as the center of the curriculum. That was the first public school system in the United States, supported by their tax dollars. And what they said was, quote, it being one of the chief projects of that old deluder, Satan, to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures, end quote. That was why they started the public school system. Eighty-eight of the first 100 colleges organized in the United States were founded to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of those but one prior to the Revolutionary War was established by the church. Places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and many others were founded primarily to train men 
to preach the gospel and to evangelize their world. That was our first universities. The first building ever erected on the University of Pennsylvania campus, the first building that ever erected was to hold the crowds that were coming to hear the preaching of a man named George Whitfield, an evangelist. And to this day, if you go to the University of Pennsylvania, that building, his statue stands outside that building. It was once said, quote, America is great because America is godly. And when America ceases to be godly, she will cease to be great. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. Many people say the greatest invention ever made was the printing press by Johann Gutenberg. And the reason Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press was so that the masses would have the Bible to read for themselves. Clearly, as a culture, we've turned our back on the one true God. I was reading a little cute little story this week of a little girl, like a second grade girl was in class, and the teacher said, what shape is the world? And the little girl said, well, my daddy says it's in the worst shape it's ever been. A lot of wisdom from that eight-year-old, right? Recently, the most valuable player of one of the, our professional, I want to say it was Steph Curry, I could be wrong, but I think it was him. Uh, anyway, the most valuable player of the league was told, in your acceptance speech as the MVP, you could say anything you want to, but don't mention Jesus Christ. So he stands up to make his acceptance speech, and the first thing he said was, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The time is going to come where we're going to find out who is willing to do that for the sake of the kingdom, I believe. Um, it's a tough time that we live in, and as I shared with you last week, it's a great time. It is a great time to be a believer in Jesus Christ because Phil Clark and I were talking about it in the lobby today, and I really believe, I don't know if it will be in my lifetime, but I do believe the time's going to come when they're going to save the church. You can't do what you're doing here. I may believe, and it may be in my lifetime where they say to the church, if you're not willing to do certain things, you're not willing to acquiesce, we're going to take away your tax-exempt status. And then we'll find out who's in, who's out. You can't meet publicly like you have been doing. One of the things that set the early church apart and made them so powerful was their belief that you can do anything you want to to us. But Jesus Christ has told us, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Difficult, difficult times. That early church, history tells us, the Bible tells us, and history proves, they turned the world upside down. They changed the Roman Empire. So the challenge for us is going to be, are we wanting to and willing to change our world for the gospel? None of us is ever going to sit on the Supreme Court. But we sure need to pray for the nine people that do. None of us is ever going to be president of the United States. But we sure need to pray for the man or woman who is in our leadership. Pray that the, the, the satanic shackles would drop from their eyes and they would see what truth is. Talk about how great our nation is, and it is. 239 years, great nation. What are we trusting in? What does America really stand for? Freedom is 
so true. But it's also so fragile. If we don't learn from history, we will suffer mightily. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, and it's look at what God wants us to trust in. You'll take your hand out. You'll notice we're talking about the love of God's discipline, and Jeremiah 7 is where we are. And we talked about returning to God last week, and the reason we do that is number one and number two in your handout. Our God alone is sovereign. Our God alone offers salvation. Therefore, God says, all right, you say you want to return. You want to come back to me. And stop trusting in lying words instead of God's word. Stop trusting in false gods instead of the one true God. Stop trusting in a place. You're talking about the temple instead of the person of God. So today, in Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 12, we're going to look at the other side of that. We saw last week God said, stop trusting in these things, the idolatry they've been chasing after. And now the other side of that coin is, all right, I'm going to stop doing this. What am I going to do? Where we kind of where we left off last week. God says, all right, start trusting in, stop trusting in these things and start trusting in these things. Number one. God's loving discipline. The primary focus of this part of Jeremiah that we're going to look at is this. Please look up here and get this. If you, we we talked about this last week, we're really going to hit on it today. If you miss everything else I say, which is very possible, please get this. God's discipline is always out of love and is always perfect, fair, righteous and the best thing. We have to start trusting in that, that God knows what he's doing rather than questioning him, rather than trusting in myself or some other entity like the United States government to do everything for me. I need to trust my God and understand he is God. He's never stopped being God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. It's the same God that spoke the universe into existence. And I love to watch fireworks. uh, Last night I just stood and looked out my window and watched as my neighbors spent their money. I appreciate them doing that for me. I mean, one of my neighbors spent some serious money on his fireworks, and I really appreciate that. I mean, when you hear boom, and that's just him lighting it, that's impressive. And then you hear the boom, and you see what it does, I said, I appreciate that. Like like the town doing this and and Bellevue doing it and and others. And you go and and I love to watch fireworks in person. One of the things I love to do, and I love to watch storms. Like Friday, I decided in my inimitable wisdom, Jimmy and I and some others decided we'd go play golf Friday in Olive Branch. I texted them, or I, caught, I didn't text them because I couldn't see, but I got off at 385 in Riverdale, and I pulled over at a parking lot, and then I texted them, I said, man, I can't even see the road, much less the golf course, so I don't think we're playing golf today. I could be wrong, but I don't think we're going to, and then one of them texted that, well, the hard stuff hadn't started to come down yet, but that's a joke, never mind. So, but I love to watch storms. Because it's a reminder to me, my God is bigger than the storm. I love to watch clouds because it's a reminder to me, the God that created clouds is my dad. 
The same God that walked in the Garden of Eden. The same God that, that parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. The same God that just threw the stars out there is Randy's heavenly Father. And he's yours as a believer. And here's what he says to you. Start, start trusting me. The righteous live by faith. Not a blind leap in the dark. But a faith in a God you can trust. That you can walk out and, and, and examine your universe. And realize there's something out there bigger than me. For example, even if you're blind and you can't see fireworks and you can't see the, the sky and you can't see the stars and the moon and the sun, you can walk outside today and feel the sun. You can feel the wind. But just let's forget all that for a moment. You have the capacity, and you do it all the time. To sit and think, to emote, to interact intellectually on a, a level that no one else can, no other thing in the universe can. And to think that that is a total accident of just monumental proportions is not only preposterous, is that the word? Preposterous and stupid a.k.a. evolution, it's not even logical. It doesn't fit the evidence. The evidence screams, even if you don't believe the Bible and don't believe in Jesus Christ, the evidence of the human intellect, How many? if you've, if you've looked at uh, what goes on in the womb of a, a lady that's carrying a child and watching that fetus develop, it's clear. That's not an accident. That is God at work. And he says to us, I'm here. I am God. Now, are you going to trust me? Even if you don't believe the Bible and Jesus Christ, it screams, somebody designed this. And then the next question is, who is that designer? We come back to, and we believe it's the God of the Bible because he told us about it. The evidence fits, proven himself to be God. And so we say, all right, I follow that God. So the Lord says, start trusting in me. Look at verse 12 of Jeremiah 7. Start trusting my discipline. This is kind of where we left off last week. I'm going to hit this quickly and move on. But go now. Notice that phrase, very important. Go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. At Shiloh, where he set my name, that's the tabernacle. And now because you have done all these works, you, now, your time, Says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early, speaking, but you did not hear. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, which is called by my name, the temple, in which you trust the temple, and to this place which I gave you and your father's temple, Jerusalem, as I have done to Shiloh. Remember Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Ephraim was the northern kingdom, Israel, and we've talked about that. But, and here's what God is saying. Remember Shiloh? If you don't learn from history, what's the rest of the quote? You're doomed to what? If the United States doesn't learn from the history of, of culture after culture after culture that turns its back on God and adopts moral relativism, and is ultimately destroyed from within, we are doomed, and we are on the path to being that nation. So here's what God says. 
Remember Shiloh? Shiloh was where the tabernacle sat. The tabernacle was the precursor to the temple, where the tabernacle sat in the time of the judges. I want you to listen to a quote from Psalm 78. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, that's the northern kingdom, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and he delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. God is reminding Judah of the discipline of Israel. The tabernacle was after Joshua conquered the the promised land. It was destroyed in 1050 B.C. by the Philistines. Here's what God is saying to Israel. Go now. I mentioned that to you a moment ago. Go now. Remember Judah, because that was what happened historically. Remember Shiloh? Now it's your turn. We talked about last week. They had, uh, Josiah had brought them back to the temple and they were, they were going to have Passover again. And they were back and they, their attitude was, we got the temple, we're gold, we don't have to worry about it. They were placing their faith not in the God of the temple, but the temple itself. They were worshiping a place and not a person. God says, okay, now it's your turn. This is my discipline. And now, verse 13, you, like Israel... You, quote, have done all these works. I spoke to you, God. And I love that phrase in verse 13. It's so, in Hebrew, it's so full of the emotion of God. You see the phrase in verse 13, rising up early. You see that? Please don't miss it because it's really important. It's the only time it's used in the Old Testament. The only time it's used. And here's what it means. God is saying, I got up early. Day, again, metaphorically, I got up early, day after day after day, and I zealously, day after day after day, called out to you. What's God wanting them to understand? For years and years and years, I've called to you. I've sent Jeremiah. I've sent other prophets. I've warned you. I've told you. I've begged you. And not just every now and then, but every day, and not just part of the day. I got up early, and I did it all day. For years, earnestly, zealously, I called out to you. Now, notice the response, verse 13. But you did not hear. I called to you. You did not answer. So verse 14 and 15, God says, therefore, and again, You really have to understand this to understand the Old Testament. People read the Old Testament and say, well, God was awful cruel. No, it's the exact opposite. God was loving and gracious and put up with them over and over for years, their idolatry. We've talked about how bad it had gotten. All their worship of other idols and child sacrifice, everything they had done, even in the temple, ritual prostitution and sodomy, and calling this worship of a God in the temple. If you were God or I were God, what might we have done after a period of time? It would have been Zap City. It just would. We're not putting up with that anymore. I remember my my dad used to whip us with a house shoe that had a wooden heel. It was very flexible. And when he would whip, it didn't matter what, if my brother had done it, he just, he just whipped us all. There was three of us. And he'd just whip us all because he figured if I didn't do it, I probably would. 
And man, when he popped you with that house shoe, I'd say, he'd say, I'd say, why are you whipping me? He goes, it doesn't matter, just I'm doing it. That's kind of the attitude. You know what? I've had it. Every time I come home, your mother says, Ricky did this, Randy did this. And I said, whoa, whoa, Randy, it doesn't matter. Bring me my house shoe. And he knew that wasn't a good sign. If I'm God or you God, you're God, you reach a point. And I've had it. But God kept showing him grace and mercy over and over. So now verse 14. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the loving discipline. Verse 14. I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm going to have Babylon do it for me. But that's what I'm going to do. The place that's called by my name. I'm going to have Jerusalem destroyed by Babylon. And I'm going to have you taken into captivity. Remember, I did it to Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel through Assyria, and now I'm going to do it to you with Babylon. Now, here's the message I mentioned in a moment ago. God is saying to them, I'm going to do this. After years and years of begging, pleading, having, sending my prophets, giving you God's word and begging you to return and repent, I'm going to have to discipline you. For example, with your children. Do they always do exactly what you tell them to do the first time? Second time? Third time? Like you reach the ninth time, what do you finally say? Okay, I've tried everything else. Now I've got to do this. You know, the one thing, I'm taking away your phone. Oh, no, God, do not take away my phone. Anything but that. You know it's serious when I'm taking away your phone. I'm taking away your iPad. God said, I've got to discipline you. I've tried everything else. Nothing works. So the temple that you have so much faith in, it's going to be gone. Jerusalem that you think is so important, it's going to be gone. I'm going to have Babylon destroy it. C.S. Lewis in his incredible book, The Problem of Pain, great book, says this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our work. And he shouts to us, shouts at us in our pain. Sometimes what's the only thing that will get your attention? Pain. They were about to experience pain. God had been screaming at them and they weren't listening. So now he's going to shout. They were going to, everything they trusted in was going to be gone. They were getting ready to be taken out of everything they had ever known, carried off to Babylon, and they were going to be the property, property of Nebuchadnezzar. He would own them for the next 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar and then Darius and Belshazzar, king after king after king. They were going to be owned by the Babylonians, by the Medes and the Persians for the next 70 years because they would not learn from Israel's example and they would not repent. Ray Stedman, great preacher from back in the 60s and the 70s, wrote these words concerning this passage. Judgment is not God's way of of saving, of saying, excuse me, I'm through with you. It's not a mark of the abandonment of God. It's the last loving act of God to bring you back. It's the last resort of love. This message that Jeremiah spoke, Right here, what we're looking at today. This was the message, and we'll see more about this in the next couple of weeks as we wrap up Jeremiah. This message is the one 
where the people finally turned on him and said, we've had it. We've had it. Because what's Jeremiah saying to them here? Take your temple. We're going to take your Jerusalem. This is it. God has had it. They turned. I'm removing the temple you're trusting in. I'm going to exile you to another land. And they turned on Jeremiah with a just a horror of going after him. I'll show you that in a couple of weeks. Look at verse 16. So God says, first of all, I want you to start trusting in my loving discipline. Secondly, start trusting in my plan, my loving plan. I know what I'm doing. Now, look at the plan. This is really interesting. Verse 16. So God says to Jeremiah, therefore, verse 16, do not pray for this people. Whoa. Nor lift up a cry or prayer for them. Nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do, not see, do you not see with what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, their idolatry? The children, notice verse 18, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough. Now, please notice, the entire family is involved, correct? The entire family is involved. The children, the fathers, the mother, they're all working together to do what? Make cakes for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. He's saying to Jeremiah, I have decided to discipline them. Stop praying for them in this matter. Notice, it's, it's so tragic. Their idolatry was not just the men. It started out that way. But now their wives are involved and their children are involved. The families that worship together apparently get exiled together. They got their children involved in this horrific idolatry. Fathers, mothers, and children. And God says to Jeremiah, do you not see it? What's going on in Jerusalem and in Judah around? I've got to discipline them to bring them back. Stop praying for them. Now notice verse 18. It's really interesting. It says, they are worshiping, quote, the queen of heaven. This is probably, and if you, cartoons years ago, you probably saw some of this. If you're a little older, there was there, this is probably the Assyrian Babylonian goddess Ishtar. You may have heard that name. It was the goddess of love and fertility, the, uh, the goddess of the planet Venus. Ties in with Greek and Roman later, later on. Mainly worshipped by women. But here, the indoctrination of entire families. Why is this so tragic? Please look up here, parents. Why is this so tragic? It's one thing for the fathers to slip into idolatry. It's another thing for the mothers to slip into idolatry. But what were they doing to their children? They were training up another generation to follow whom? Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God of Ishtar, the goddess, the queen of heaven, and, quote, other gods. There were plenty to choose from. Here's what they're doing. They are training up another whole generation to transition right into idolatry. In the United States, 
talk, I was meeting with the guy from Bellevue this week. We were just talking about some different things in general, not just about what we can do in Arlington, but just in general, the church. And it's a proven fact. It doesn't matter how good a church you have. It's a proven fact in our nation now, every year, interest in church is declining rapidly. Whether it's Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Independence. Now, there are some churches that are flourishing. There are some that are flourishing because they don't preach the Bible. They preach to itching ears, and people like that, and so they flock to it. But you stand up and just preach the word of God. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, and there will always be a remnant according to the word of God. But it's getting smaller and smaller. Why? Because there's so many other gods to chase after. I'm standing, sitting in my office last night, looking out in front of my house. These are nice, sweet people. Some of my neighbors were out there. There was probably, I thought about my grandchildren. There was probably 10 little girls out there. They were all girls, same age out there shooting off fireworks in front of my house, which is fine. They didn't blow up anything. I'd have been out there with them if Mary would let me. They were having a great time. But you know how many of those ten little kids, because I know most of them are in church this morning? The answer is zero. I'm not saying you've got to be in this building. We don't worship this building. God knows it's an old nasty grocery store. We don't worship this building. It's a tool. But how many of their parents are saying to them on a weekly basis or a daily basis how important our faith in Jesus Christ is. What do we stand for? Who are we? When, that, when those ten little girls, as sweet as they are, when they start looking for a husband, and most girls, whether they want to admit it or not, usually look for a husband that's like their dad. If their dad is not interested in Jesus Christ, what are they going to look for in a husband? Are they going to be looking for a godly man Walking after the Lord Jesus Christ? Probably not. Now, clearly God can save them. I was saved in spite of my parents. And God took me to a church where Mary was. And God brought us together in his sovereignty. That wouldn't have happened where I was. God took care of that. And he can and he does. But that's not his plan, is it? That's not his best. His best is for girls to grow up in a godly home with a godly father leading that home spiritually. And when they say, I want a man who loves Jesus like my dad. I want a man who treats women the way my dad treats my mom. I want a man who believes the Bible and is not ashamed to say that he believes it and lives it. And he he doesn't just talk about it, he lives it. Same thing for moms and little boys. What type of woman is that little boy going to look for? A godly woman? Or just someone he's physically attracted to? Men are weird animals, I know, because I are one. And by and large, most young men, it takes them a while to understand what marriage is all about. I'm still learning, and I'm 61 years old. What are you looking for? So God says to Jeremiah, why don't you stop praying for them? Does that mean God didn't love them anymore and he'd given up? No. What it meant was, I've already decided, I'm, this is what I'm going to do here, is giving Jeremiah a preview. I'm going to discipline them. By the way, when you discipline your children, why do you do it? 
Because you hate them? Because you've given up on them? If you've given up on them, you don't discipline them, do you? You don't care. So why do you discipline your children? One, one phrase. Go ahead. Because you love them. Now, do they think you love them when you're disciplining them, when that phone or that iPad goes away or you spank them or whatever you do or you ground them for the next seven years? That's what we did with one of ours. You're grounded until you get out of high school. You're in the eighth grade. That's the only way we can handle it. You do it. Why? Because you know what they're doing will hurt them. And God said, I'm stopping this idolatry. Because you're getting another generation. If I've got to send that generation and two or more to Babylon to straighten this out, I will. When they left to go to Babylon, there were several million of them. When they came back, it was 50,000. But they had a remnant, didn't they? They had a remnant. God says, trust me. Trust my plan. I know what I'm doing. Notice the other thing he says to, he says to Jeremiah. Do not pray for them. Verse 19, they provoke me to anger. I'll show you one more thing today, and then we're going to stop. Look down to verse 27. We're going to do this, and then we're going to wrap up today. Verse 27. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them. Now, notice, they will not obey you. Verse 27 of chapter 7. You shall also call to them. They will not answer you. They didn't answer to me. They didn't listen to me. They're not going to listen to you. So we shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God nor receive correction. Please notice the last phrase of verse 28. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Here's what God says. Jeremiah, you stop praying for them, but you keep preaching. You keep preaching truth. They're not going to obey. They're not going to listen. They're not going to see correction. Why? Please look at the end of verse 28. Why? Truth has perished in the land of Judah. They're not listening to truth anymore. Does that sound like a nation that perhaps you know and live in? It's not about truth. It's about what do I want. The Supreme Court proved that last week. It's not about what's right, what's truth. It's about pleasing me. So God says, you keep preaching. You stop praying because they're not going to listen. But I'm going to get their attention. Through the Babylonian captivity, I'm going to get it. And at the end, of you read the book of Daniel, it's about the Babylonian captivity. Fascinating book. Forget the prophecy in it. Don't read it for that reason. Just read it to see what God does. And in the book of Daniel, it starts out at the beginning. Daniel is 15. It's the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. He's taken from Judah, 15, taken to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar trains him along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others to work for King Nebuchadnezzar in his palace to be like his wise men. Fascinating story. And as you see the hand of God, he said, start, start trusting me, my discipline. Trust my plan. And here's what you see. Over that 70-year period of time, Daniel becomes, at age 15 now, 15, 
He becomes the second most powerful man in the world. He becomes the head of the wise men under Nebuchadnezzar and then under Belshazzar, 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 Darius the Mede. He becomes number two in the world under three different kings and he tra- all the wise men of Persia work for Daniel. And I've shared this with you at Christmas. When the Magi come seeking the star, the one of the star, they come from the east. They'd heard about his star, and they'd heard about, do you understand who their ancestors were? They worked for Daniel. What do you think Daniel talked to them about in staff meeting? All right, boys, let me tell you who is really God. It ain't Nebuchadnezzar. It ain't Darius. It ain't Belshazzar. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the book of Daniel, just read it this week. It's only 12 chapters. Just read it for the history. He he shows Nebuchadnezzar. He shows every king. Remember the phrase, the handwriting on the wall? It's in Daniel. The fiery furnace, it's in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar literally becomes like a beast, an animal, for about seven years. God to get his attention. And at the end of that seven years, God gives him his mind back. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, you know what he says at the end of that period of time? I now perceive that the God of Daniel is God. I get it. I get it. And he says, if anybody says anything against the God of Daniel, I will have them killed. God got his attention, didn't he? Now, sooner or later, he's going to get the attention of the United States of America. I don't know what it's going to take. But I do know this. We're going to close with this. As a Christian, by the way, that term was not initially, was it Antioch? That was not initially a compliment. It was used as a term of mocking of those who followed Jesus the Christ. They were called followers of the way, and their enemies started calling them Christians to make fun of them. Sound like something that goes on in another country you might know and live in today. You, can't talk, you could talk about anything as disgusting as you want it to be, but you can't talk about Jesus. Oh, no. Man, what a great time to understand that your God is God and he always will be. Now, again, none of us are ever going to sit on the Supreme Court and none of us are ever going to be President of the United States, but let me tell you something. The God that we pray to allows him to be in office. The Bible, in the book of Daniel, by the way, talks about that. That nobody who's in authority is there except God allows them to be there. He holds them in his hand. That's who you pray to. That's your heavenly father. Boy, you should be excited about that. Stop trusting in anything but God and start trusting in his loving discipline and in his plan of love. He knows what he's doing. Because the Bible clearly tells us that there is a time coming. We don't know when it is. We do know it is coming definitively that the time is coming when God will say enough, Jesus will come back and will judge. Now, if I'm born again, I don't worry about that. But I do care about my family, my neighbors, my world, my nation that's not born again. Remember, the the God that we pray to is sovereign over every bit of that. That should excite you. I hope it, I hope it if, if nothing else, 
I hope it excites your prayer life. It does mine. I, there are some people in Washington that I think are just absolutely stupid. But I pray for them every day because the Bible tells me to. Because my God is bigger than them. He's bigger than them. That's who I'm trusting in. Let's pray. Father, we pause before you as Father, as God, as creator of the universe, our personal Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thrilled, Lord, you've allowed us to be your children. You've saved us. You've placed us in this world, in this moment, in this era, the church age. This is our moment in space and time to be the church. We're thrilled about that, excited. Lord, we pray you use us to think, what in the world can I do in Memphis, Tennessee? I can pray. I can live. I can be real. I can impact my arena of influence, my sphere for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and see what you do. You never know. But you know, Father, you're already there. So, Lord, thank you for the privilege. Use us. Convict us. Challenge us to be what Jesus Christ calls us to be, his disciples. Send us out in the world to share Jesus. And Lord, if there's somebody seated here who's not a Christian, this would be their moment in time when they say, I realize it's about truth. Jesus is the truth. He alone can change me. He alone can change this nation. Save me, Lord, right now. We thank you for this time, Lord, in Jesus' name.